Welcome to the Rosenfeld Review, where we're just a bunch of blind men trying to figure out that elephant. I'm your host, Lou Rosenfeld from Rosenfeld Media, and my guest today is Bria Alexander. Bria, hello. Hello. Hi, everyone. So thrilled to be here. It's great to have you join us. Uh, Bria is the Brand Experiences Program Manager uh, at Adobe. She um, works on a lot of projects. I really can't quite uh, imagine how you keep up with all these things, not just because there's a lot of them, but they're really interesting. You were telling me about the branded icons team that you're supporting and the, the prototyping and AI team. And I think there were a couple AI teams and then the content strategy team, which means you have to deal with Andy Wellfley. And I, I, that's gotta be a pretty big handful. How do you do all that at Adobe? Oh, well, when it comes to Andy, it's an honor and a pleasure, always. You hear that, Andy? <laughs> he better be listening. He better be listening. No, I, gosh, how do I do it all? I love it. I really do. I Design work has been, you know, I've been led to this work in a really roundabout path. We were talking about that earlier, but I really am passionate about the user experience and being part of a team, especially a team at such a, a ubiquitous name in the design community like Adobe. Like my my objective is to be as engrossed in as many things as I can um, that to actually add touches our end users. And whether it's AI and prototyping for cool ideas that we can include in the products or the words that we use within the products or what how you identify the products in the outside world, that Photoshop mnemonic, for example, which is something we worked on this year with our rebrand project. It's all stuff that I really love. So I, I feel so lucky and so blessed to work with such a wonderful team. And I can keep track of it all because I really like it. <laughs> well, tell me about prototyping and AI. Just put them together for me. Oh, gosh. So prototype as, a, as in a definition? Well, are we using AI to uh, create prototypes? Are we prototyping uh, AI products? All the above? Now, right now, I'm on a project that's that's working to create what we're calling an AI-first product. So it's a prototype, meaning a a something that will eventually hopefully be a product, a prototype with different feature sets that could either align with what we've currently got um, available to our customers or something in the future. That is my current world. Prototyping an AI turns into a product that uses artificial intelligence as the main tool instead of you know drawing or something like that as you've seen in the past from us. Wow, okay. So Adobe is um, going to be um, a tool for um, purveyors of the design craft who don't necessarily pick up a, a a pen and ink first, they may pick up AI as a design material or a design tool first. That's absolutely correct. At Adobe, we talk a lot about creativity for all, and that truly means for all, whether you have skills with a pen or not, we want to make sure that you have the ability to create as seamlessly or as, easy, as easily as someone with, you know, potentially a degree or a special talent in calligraphy or something. So go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no. I, I mean, that's that's pretty amazing. But I'm, I am going to take us in a slightly different direction because, first of all, one of the reasons we were talking is uh, Bria is going to be our MC at the Design Ops Summit uh, taking place October 21 through 23 virtual conference. It'll be the fourth edition of that conference that Rosenfeld Media has put on. And I really can't quite wrap my mind around that really happy to have you on board as the MC because you know little little uh um known fact uh if it wasn't you it would be me and that's kind of a problem anyone who knows me uh, you never mentioned them. that Lou you, yeah. that I did not know <laughs> the design ops world came this close to having me as the MC this year so thank you we all owe you a, a debt of gratitude 
Um, but we're talking a little bit uh, earlier today um, about the program and um, the role of diversity uh, and equity and inclusion in the field. It, it, it's a big factor in this year's Design Ops program. Uh, and it's also been one in our other conference programs as well. And I wanted to tell you a little bit about uh, an experience that I had with our most recent conference, which was Enterprise Experience, and um, get your feedback on that. Because I know it's an issue that you think about quite a bit. And again, it's going to be a big part of not only this program for Design Ops, but it's, it's something that the design community really needs to figure out in a way because... You know, we're, we're on one hand, we're like the people generally who are supposed to be very open of mind and heart and soul and uh, empathetic and able to put oneself in another person's shoes. And yet we've done a really crappy job when it comes to the E&I. And I think well, my theory is that we've been in a position of uh, constantly trying to fight our way to the table, get that seat at the table and we think of ourselves as the uh, underdog when we're actually not as a community and we actually have people in underdog roles among us that we don't really support nearly as well as we need to. And it's not just an issue of DE&I. I mean, um, I, I always like to um, uh, joke about, uh, you know, my wife, not joke about her, but here, here's a UX writer and you know, she feels lost among the UX designers at times. I, I hear her say the same kinds of things. I often hear um, designers say when they've been working on a team of uh, engineers or developers. So we're all kind of guilty in, in many ways of not being uh, aware of people around us and the diversity of experience around us. So with that lead in, um, the experience I wanted to get your thoughts on from Enterprise Experience was this. We had a speaker who uh, talked quite a bit um, about BLM in her talk. And um, listen, I mean, we That's take- Black Lives Matter for thank anyone. You. <laughs> Black Lives Matter. And um, she, um, uh, you know, well, we want people to have a good experience and, and we want there to be, um, uh, you know, respect for our code of conduct. We make a strong point about um, sharing information about that throughout the conference. And so the only concern I had uh, from anyone about our code of conduct was uh, someone who was concerned about the politicization of our program. That a speaker mentioned BLM and had slides related to, to BLM mm. and uh, it made that person uncomfortable. And so I arranged to have a discussion by phone. It was a very good discussion. Um, and, uh, I mean, it was very respectful, uh, but the attendee felt very much that um, he was in a difficult position because he had um, invited his team, he was a manager, to attend the conference and really put his neck out in the sense of promoting it, saying it's a great conference, et cetera, et cetera. And when the speaker mentioned BLM, multiple times, it made these designers uncomfortable. It made them feel like it was not about design. It was about politics. Mm. So um, I had, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about how I responded, but um, how do you draw the connection between 
what we do as UX designers and what may appear to be politics? Wow. What a question. And it's, it's such an interesting topic. I, I want to open by saying that context is key. <laughs> and when I say that, I mean, you know, I'm all about the user experience. And I think it's important for all of us within design to remember that the products that we create have to be sensitive to the users that are using them. And often in design as a field that is almost overwhelmingly white at times, I can say that as a, as a black yeah. woman working within that field, we can forget that more than just white people use our products and our tools. Um, and so in, you know, in response to the gentleman that you're speaking about and his, his, I guess, I don't want to use the word defensiveness because that I think is a, might be a little bit stronger than how he felt having not been there, but just his reaction to hearing Black Lives Matter and, and automatically switching to, oh my God, this is not what I signed up for. This is not what I've signed up to do. I would say like, you have to remember that this is something that is happening to our users, like Black Lives Matter movement and any other social movements of the day. Our products have a responsibility to, to have enough context to not say or do anything inappropriate within products. And you may kind of do a little bit of a shifty eye, like, what do you mean? How does that relate to the product? Here's a great example um, at a company I don't work for. So at Pinterest, as a black person who loves Pinterest, loves using pins as a, I'm a, I'm a recent um, homeowner and I've been pinning all sorts of different ideas for my new home, for different rooms. And every time I have to look or find or search for anything that would be appropriate for me, um, for Pinterest, let's use, not use the home example. Let's use like I don't know, like a hairstyle. I'll always have to say black girl braids, black girl, natural hair, black woman uh, outfits, like everything I ever have to say within the Pinterest platform has to be prefaced with the words of black girl and black woman. And I had an opportunity to see the CEO of Pinterest a couple of years ago and he openly said like, hey, this is an area that we are actively looking to work on. But that's just a, a, a case in point, our products off, more often than not are created with a single user in mind and that user is the person that is creating the tools, which is why it is so incredibly important for all designers to have co-creators, diverse co-creators, and also collaborative partners to make sure that we don't create a user experience for our non-Black our non or non-person of color, um, non-person of color, I guess, users that, that doesn't fit for them. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think it goes even more broadly. I mean, a lot, we, we often think we're designing for communities and we think that covers it. Like, oh, mm. so I, I mean, I'm thinking back to the olden days in the IA community where we used to talk about developing folksonomies, you know, uh, user generated tags or metadata that would then inform more formalized taxonomies. And we thought, isn't this great and, and radical and revolutionary? But, you know, uh, I think. Again, there was a, a huge amount of probably white centrism in those communities to begin with. So it just it actually is worse in the sense that you just sort of put things on autopilot and you say, oh, OK, you know, we're, we're opening things up. So we don't really need to, like, consciously work for diversity. And, mm. and I think that's problematic. Yeah, I think it's. You know, I have a lot of empathy because if the the table were turned and every <laughs> and I had, you know, if everything around me reflected my perspective and my point of view, I think it would be really easy for me not to step out of my own comfort zone and actively seek out perspectives that might make me uncomfortable, right? But, you know, I am I am a black person who can only speak to the experiences of being a black woman. Um but I I can say that you know, unlearning like 
unlearning our, our, our differences or unlearning our, maybe differences is the right word. I think the word I might be looking for is just unlearning that, that right to comfort. There we go. Mm -hmm. Unlearning that right to comfort is something that I actively have to work on. Like we, we talked about this a little bit beforehand in the pod, before the pod started too, but I grad, I was an international business and finance major in my undergraduate degree. And so I've always been a person that really, really actively seeks out other perspectives to shape my worldview. That's just something I've always been passionate about in my, my world travels and in everything else. That's why I decided to be an international business major. But I've, I've found that that skill has made me such a wonderful program manager and just such a wonderful advocate for design because when I do have a space at a table, I can, I can rally a perspective that maybe other people don't want to, um, not necessarily want to think about, but don't want to step out of their own comfort zone to consider that their own experiences have limitations. You know, we all spend a lot of money on our educations. We all have a lot of pride of where we come from, you know, to, to admit that you don't have all the perspectives in the world is a tricky thing. It's a sensitive thing. And I, I'm very much empathetic to that, but I think it's also important for us to remember how diverse our user base is. We, you know, it's 2020, the internet, especially because of this pandemic is very much the way that we experience our world. And, you know, the world means the world, you know, everyone, everyone who has access to, to the internet, which is not everyone, you know, to be, to be safe, you know, just to make sure I'm covering all my bases, but I think it's important for all of us to remember how diverse a user base we are we are um, serving. Right, and and that was back to that situation uh, from this this last conference. Uh, that was a point I was trying to to make. Um, this is a company where this gentleman works that has a uh, certainly a, an international uh, user base, and and meanwhile the designers working are don't, don't sound very sensitive to that fact. Um, uh, but. Um, I don't mean it as a criticism. I mean, what, when, what I tried to do when I talked with him was to say, well, let, let's, I try to put myself in his shoes to some degrees. A manager doesn't feel good about the situation. Um, didn't really know what to say to his people. And what I said is, hey, you know, this, this, this talk that mentions Black Lives Matter is part of a UX conference program. Yeah. There's a reason for that. It's not just about BLM, but it's a part of it. And it's on this program why maybe that's the question for your team to answer rather than storming off when they didn't like what they heard yeah and at least if they still didn't think it was relevant they would have kind of subjected their own positions to some self-scrutiny and uh maybe thought it through and had a, a better definition of what should be on a ux program and i just want to make the point you know we're, we're involved in conferences you and i and Many other people who probably listen uh, uh, to, the, to my podcast or conference organizers and certainly speakers, we're defining the field. It's, it's literally being defined when we create programs. We have to be very conscious of that. And we have to be in a position to defend them. So you can look at a conference program as a product that has to appeal to a, an audience, but it also, and maybe I was worried that it didn't appeal to that particular audience. On the other hand, we have to make a case for why it, it has value. Sometimes, I hate to say it, but sometimes the user might be wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Like something that comes to mind for me as you were speaking was the idea that, you know, even if I do go to a conference and someone says something that I do you know, may not necessarily agree with, I'd want to, I would always want to have enough trust in the conference curators to know that, you know, 
whatever is shared is uh, is helpful because it gives me appropriate context to best serve those who use my product. And I think that's an example of what I'm sure you were trying or the speaker was trying to get at with um, with her speech, whatever the specific topic area might have been in that, you know, it's it's important for you to understand all perspectives as a person, you know, as in design, I'm sure you don't hear a lot of folks talking about the Black Lives Matter movement a whole bunch. So to me hearing that out, you know, what might be an alternative perspective to that gentleman or that gentleman's team would be um, very much of value, not necessarily for you to believe it or for you to champion that perspective, but just for you to have enough context about it to be able to speak to it with authority. Yeah, I mean, just hear a position. And yeah, I mean, it's hard. Uh, you know, design is so political and mm. uh, we can't avoid politics. And I, I am a little worried that today uh, in our field, as we are growing so quickly to meet this huge demand and because we have to move so quickly, um, you know, the, the people entering the field don't necessarily have the, understand the, the, the history of the field and what's ultimately really the political nature of the field and see it instead as, you know, providing a commodity type service. You go to work every day and you, whether it's pushing pixels around or, or, or doing very micro level aspects of design and then you leave at the end of the day, I, I don't think that's viable. I, I think it very quickly, the people in those types of roles that are really, you know, that kind of, are, they see themselves as a commodity. I, I don't think there's a strong future for that or for them at least in the field. Absolutely. And, you know, a design will evolve into what it will be. To your point, we are, I feel like we're, I don't think we're, you know, infants, but, you know, we're about nine or 10 years old, eight, nine, 10 year olds. We're starting to have our own thoughts. We're starting to walk pretty independently, having independent thoughts. And who knows what we'll be when we grow up for real. But I, I can't agree with you more. Like, you, you raised I love that metaphor. <laughs> well, I love your metaphor. Um, let's, let's, let's turn it back uh, for a couple minutes to Adobe because. I will just confess. Um, so I, I'm not a practitioner. When I was a practitioner, I was an information architect and that was a really long time ago and we weren't using any kind of graphical oriented products, which is what we thought of as Adobe back then. And I know Adobe is a very different animal right now, uh, years later, and you're obviously trying to uh, address all types of design. What's Adobe's sort of position of any related to uh, design operations. Are you trying to build tools uh, specifically for design ops people? Uh, is there any kind of uh, uh, programmatic uh, approach to uh, supporting uh, the profession of design ops specifically? Huh. Well, I would say that Adobe as a company, part of our SLA process isn't building tools for design operations specifically. However, a lot of the tools that we do sell, and I'll, I'll go into those in just a moment, are very heavily used by our design operations folks. So a great example of that is Adobe XD. Adobe XD is a prototyping tool. It is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderfully fun tool once you get the hang of it. And it's something that our design operations team uses you know, in place of a keynote deck very often or a PowerPoint deck. And I found a lot of fun and value out of that because you just have so many more features to play with to demonstrate either your system that you're trying to illustrate or to demonstrate a new product or program. It is a wonderful tool 
for that type of thing. But outside of that, our design operations department uses a lot of the same tools that you'll see other places in the industry, Airtable, Notion, Jira, <laughs> Trello, a lot of other project management tools that you use. But what I love the most about like my role at Adobe and the ways in which I get to leverage products is that you know, in brand and icons, we're using Illustrator, we're using Photoshop, we're using InDesign very, very heavily. And we're using the workflows and the plugins that are available to not only Adobe tools, but also these pro project management tools to be able to streamline our process, which is really, really nice. And I really appreciate it, <laughs> um, especially being given access to these wonderful, wonderful tools as part of you know being an employee there, the expectations that you use them. So we do get access to them for, for free which I think is a really great differentiator between working at Adobe versus a lot of other companies who may not want to put the investment into the Adobe Creative Cloud software set, which we have, we have seen in other places. So I'm especially grateful. Well, it's really interesting to see, I guess, what you might call a uh, design ops uh, tech stack emerging. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back and we'll continue talking with Bria Alexander. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you want more, not only do we have a whole bunch of podcasts in our archive, but we have something that's very current, very alive, and very engaging for groups. And that is our communities. Rosenfeld Media runs a variety of communities that meet on a monthly basis for video conferences on a variety of topics near and dear to UX people, ranging from enterprise experience to advancing research, to design and research operations. I want to encourage you to join one of our communities. Again, it is free by going to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. Not only will you get a monthly video conference that you can listen in on and participate in, ask questions and so forth, we'll give you access to the recordings. And uh, for some of those communities, we're talking about dozens of recordings with really interesting presenters and facilitators. You'll also get a newsletter. You'll get access to an advice columnist. Yes, we actually are providing advice columnists for each community. And finally, if you're interested in our conferences, our communities correspond to our conferences. So you will be the first to know when programs, uh, when programs go live, uh, when tickets go on sale, and by the way, most of our conferences sell out, and other good things about our conferences, such as uh, when the scholarship applications open up. So go to rosenfeldmedia.com slash communities. You're going to find something that's free, something that's interesting, and it's a great opportunity to find your tribe as well. We'll see you there. Welcome back to the Rosenfeld Review. I'm Lou Rosenfeld. I'm talking with Brie Alexander. And... Um, Rio, we were just, uh, we, we touched on co-creation a little earlier. Let's develop that a little bit more. What's your th Absolutely. thinking there? About co-creation? Yeah. I think it's important. I think but it's incredibly important for all of our designers to have diverse co-creators as we work towards whatever product that we're working for. And that's for every part of design. That's everything from UX writers to um, UX designers. I think sure. it's important for us to have diverse perspectives reflected in how we create together. So, you know, the, the, the tricky thing about it is, you, let's say you have a team doing co-creation or is it, or do you look at co-creation going beyond the team to uh, uh, involve uh, uh, potential uh, users? Where do you draw the line around the people involved? And then do you ever get into like a challenge in terms of like, 
what types of perspectives and experiences are you going to represent in what's ultimately a finite team? Uh, it can't be a perfect microcosm of the of the world or even of the the audience of users. So how do you kind of do the the balancing as best you can? I think it. It's important for us to distinguish like the scope of what maybe a research department might do and then what co-design is. So to me, when you get into the external conversation, into you know, ways in which we can include our users or that type of thing, that to me is more research like mm-hmm. focus. Like let's get some insights specific to how this product is used, how this product is um, collaborated with or shared, that type of thing. That's to me the val- of one of the many values of research. On the flip side, co-creation to me is ensuring that we have diverse perspectives in the way that um, we design our products. So I used the Pinterest example a little bit earlier, mm-hmm. and I think that, it, you know, I don't know the specifics of it as a person that doesn't work there, but I think that Pinterest likely would not have had to find out from their users that you have to do, you know, search your race or your ethnicity before your actual search to find things relevant to you. They likely would not have had to find that out from their users if they had a diverse co-creator or a diverse team working to create a product or service that would not only reflect um, the needs of, you know, the person, people that create it, but the needs of other people who love to use their product. Like here's another really out there example of like diverse co-creators and how it makes a, a big difference. I'm a big fan of makeup and, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a dark skin girl. I'm a dark skin black girl. And I've always been a fan of makeup, but growing up until incredibly recently, I would go to the makeup counter and people would tell me like, no, we don't have anything for you. Like we don't have, you know, you want a bronzer. We don't sell bronzers in your skin tone. We can use an eyeshadow. We don't, we don't create anything for you. Sorry, too bad. You know what's happening. And then until about what was it? 20, 20, what, 17, 2016, 2015, around then when Rihanna, of all people, created, came out with a makeup line that covered, I think, 52 shades of foundation. And it was the first of its, of its kind to have such a diverse range of shades of foundation. As a person who loved makeup casually but couldn't find anything that really suited my shade, it really got me excited. I feel like this product is for me. This product is created for me. And ever since then, and once again, extending my makeup example, a lot of other companies, NARS and all sorts of other makeup companies have followed in Fenty Beauty Soup by having a really, really wide range of foundation products available for them. Now, what does that have to do with design? Now, to me, that is the value of having diverse co-creators or at least a, a person who is you know, of diverse background in leadership because Rihanna is a woman who is a black woman, a woman who is, you know, daughter of a dark skinned black woman saw and understood the plight that I had experienced my entire life, that I, <laughs> makeup is not for me. Things are not created for me. Things are not created in my best interest and my money's just as green as everybody else's. Mm-hmm. And in that particular instance that, you know, that's her mother, that's not necessarily a diverse co-creator, you know, you can get into the semantics of how, how specific, but I think the point remains the same. Like in the same way that we've got users who go to some of our products and look around and try to make it work for them, try to jimmy rig it to work well for them. What a big difference it makes to have a company that out the gate makes products that are absolutely relevant to me, made for me, made with me in mind, and I get a higher value of. You know, if we use the Rihanna example to continue it, a lot of people will follow in your suit if you create, if you use diverse co-creators to create a product that suits um, more than just the people that may be strictly related to who you are. Now, a little bit of an unusual example, but does that, do you, does that make sense? Absolutely, absolutely. And it, I just keep thinking about how capitalism plays such a weird, interesting role in all this, right? So yeah. uh, capitalism that uh, you know 
kind of screws things up dramatically. And then um, in this case, it, it was a very capitalistic opportunity, I suppose, uh, for, uh, for, for this line of makeup to be created. But, um, you know, yeah. what's odd to me is like that, you know, I, I guess this comes down to co-design. Uh, you know, there was, you know, there's all these makeup companies in the industry for years could have been making money. But someone else had to go exactly. first. Once they saw someone go first, they were happy to follow suit. And, you know, Angela Glover Blackwell talks about this. Well, she didn't write this book, but I, I first heard about it from her. It's called The Curb Cut Effect. And it talks about, well, the curb cut effect is specifically how creating a curb cut in the curb for those with a disability, how it, how it benefits everybody. And the curb cut effect is also incredibly relevant to this conversation because you're right, Lou, we could be making more money because being inclusive, using, you know, using co-design as a tenant, you know, actively practicing, including inclusive perspectives, it's better for everyone. You mm -hmm. know, everyone makes more money when more people feel like their products are for them and more people are, are excited about a product or don't have to, as I use Jimmy rig <laughs> a product to make it work for them. More people are excited. You build brand equity, you build, you know, a relationship with an individual when you have a product that, you know, truly is made with and for you in mind. And so often non-black people or, you know, non-people of color are not included in that number. Well, I, I, there's so much more we could talk about for sure. Um, and I am uh, just tickled to have you involved in desi the Design Up Summit uh, and to share your perspective there and to be um, what's going to be a, here's a, a here, I'm going to put it in a really odd way, a really delightful glue for the whole three-day experience. <laughs> Um, again, uh, it was either, um, you were going to get, uh, uh, Bria to be our uh, MC at the design up summit, or you're going to get me. So you're all very fortunate. Um, I hope you'll be joining us October 21st through 23rd. It's a virtual event. Um, before we wrap Bria, uh, I always like to ask if there's a, a couple of resources or people or, or books or whatnot that you think uh, our listeners should know about. Oh my. And I've got a lot of them. So if you've got a pen and paper, get ready. So I think the curb cut effect is a great one. How to be anti-racist by Dr. Ibram Kindi is another wonderful one. The 1619 podcast. I know folks get a little bit defensive when we mentioned the 1619 project. I know it's been in the news a lot lately, mm -hmm. but again, referring back to what we talked about a bit earlier, to me, I find a lot of value in just understanding the perspective to speak from it to it, not from a place of how it makes me feel in the politicized way that it's presented to me, but just to understand what the heck it is that they're talking about. So 1619 podcast, I found a lot of value in um, listening to that. I would also say, I know someone's mentioned it early on the pod, but truly cast by Isabel Wilkerson, an excellent, excellent book really. And it's, it's a little bit of a heavy read, but if you take it piece by piece, I found that it was incredibly just helpful for me to speak to a lot of things that I've observed, but didn't have the words to quite to define. Um, it, it was really helpful for that. Hmm. Who else? Who else would I I give a quick shout out to? Yeah, I, I think that's that's all. Oh, the John Oliver episode, August, I think, 2nd. John Oliver, who is a um, TV personality on um, a t television show by, called Last Week Tonight. He hosts, uh, he had a show about U.S. history recently that I found to be incredibly enlightening, um, even for folks who, you know, are not within the U.S. I know you've got a global audience here. I think you'd find a lot of value in a lot of the, the topics that these these things are discussed and you may hear I'm, I'm leaning towards sort of a theme here, but you know, in the last couple of months from the 
protests that we've seen outside of the streets and all over the globe, it's definitely been top of mind for me and I, I think top of mind for other folks. So if you're looking for tools to help understand what's happening around you, I think these are wonderful places to well, start. And the John Oliver podcast, it, it's as if uh, you, you're getting Howard's in with a great sense of humor. So uh, <laughs> Bria, exactly. thanks so much. Uh, great to have you join us today. Uh, looking forward to your, to joining us uh, at the Design Up Summit. Bria Alexander, Brand Experiences Program Manager at Adobe. You want to learn more about Bria. Uh, she says LinkedIn's the place to look, so go to LinkedIn. Bria V. Alexander is my LinkedIn backslash, but I'm so thrilled. I think we're going to have such a great time at the Design Summit. Really, make a point to be there. I'll come with a few corny jokes of my own. Um, I think we're going to have a wonderful time, and I can't thank Lou enough for extending his his platform to help me be the the glue, as he says. Um, to, from glue to glue. Thank from you. From glue to glue. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Bria. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to the Rosenfeld Review, brought to you by Rosenfeld Media. If you like our show, please subscribe and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. I'd love it if you tell a friend to have a listen. And please check out our website for over 100 podcasts with other interesting people. You'll find them all at rosenfeldreview.com.